Hello, and welcome to Neurotips, the podcast where each episode, we examine how neuroscience is depicted in a work of fiction, and then afterwards, we talk about the real-world science behind it. I'm Stephen Ho, and with me is Nick Halper. Hey, Nick. Uh, So, we cheated a little bit in this episode because this is a podcast about neuroscience and fiction, and this is fiction, technically, It's fiction based on real-life events, based on a real clinical study that happened uh, some decades ago. Yeah. Real places, real people, real diseases, and real drugs. So this will be a little different from probably most most of our episodes where we're, you know, talking about very fanciful devices or very futuristic applications of neuroscience that maybe are not plausible now but are based on real science. But this is... This is very grounded. The movie that we're discussing this week is called Awakenings from 1991, directed by Penny Marshall. Uh, It's based on a 1973 book by Dr. Oliver Sacks. Dr. Oliver Sacks is one of the most prolific medical writers and popular science medical writers out there. He was a practicing clinical neurologist in New York City for decades, and he wrote many best-selling books about, uh, largely about unusual neurological disorders that he encountered during his career. The most well-known among these are um, obviously Awakenings, due to it being made into a feature film, and uh, also the other one that most people, that many people may know, is The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Right. Though actually, my favorite book of his is Musicophilia. If you haven't read that one, uh, it's fantastic. I want to say there's a um, one of the essays in that was adapted into a movie as well. Or am I thinking of something else? Uh, I think you're right. I actually think it was the one where the guy has a case of amnesia and they use music to restore memory. Okay. So we'll circle back to that at an indefinite point in the future. <laughs> <laughs> so the background behind this is... Um, This was one of his first uh, clinical jobs at Beth Abraham Hospital in New York. And this is basically the story of the clinical trial of L-DOPA in some catatonic patients that he was treating. This movie was largely filmed on location in New York City. Now, I said this is a fictional version of, uh, of, of what happened. So the main character is not Dr. Oliver Sacks, but instead Dr. Malcolm Sayer, uh, played by Robin Williams. And I want to take a moment here to probably divert a little bit. And why celebrity deaths usually don't phase me too much, but Robin Williams, that that one hit hard. Yeah, definitely. I think it was especially hard experiencing that and then coming back to this movie afterwards, because this is the first time I saw this movie. Um, And so seeing kind of how lively and what a strong actor Williams was, it was definitely hard watching it for several reasons. Robin Williams, of course, well, many people will know him as the genie from Aladdin, the what year is it man from Jumanji. <laughs> I, I don't actually remember his character's name. But, you know, it. my parents once told me that when they came to the U.S. back in the early 80s, uh, when they immigrated, one of the first TV shows they saw was Mork and Mindy with Robin Williams. That was his breakout role. And, you know, I think that just goes to say that you know, he, he truly was an entertainer that transcended generations. Uh, I mean, obviously, his body of work is amazing, and he left a great legacy, but the entertainment world is certainly poorer for having lost him. Now, this is not a Robin Williams podcast, although that would be an extraordinarily fun thing to do. So <laughs> one day. So Robin Williams plays Dr. Malcolm Sayer. 
although we don't get introduced to him immediately. We start off uh, kind of in a flashback where we start to see one of the children who eventually will develop, we learn, eventually develops into one of the patients that he sees. We kind of see a little bit the of the kid developing symptoms. His hand starts to shake as he's writing his ha- writing schoolwork, and then after the, his symptoms are made clear to us, uh, we are put forward to New York City in 1969, where Dr. Malcolm Sayer, played by played by Robin Williams, is interviewing for a position at this hospital. So the way this scene is written. I mean, I, I would say this whole movie is is very touching and pretty serious throughout most of it, but it has these comedic interjections, and this is definitely one of them. Right, and not to be too repetitive about uh, Robin Williams, but this was one of his many talents that he could jump between having amazing comedic timing and comedic delivery to just conveying any emotion very, very well. So the main emotion that he's he's conveying during this interview is just simple awkwardness. Yeah, so the premise of the interview is he's interviewing at this hospital, but he's a neuroscience researcher, and he talks about his research and the worms that he's working with, and he's basically like unfit for the job. And he didn't really realize that coming in. And it's that these understaffed hospital administrators are basically trying to convince him that his work is applicable and that he should end up becoming a clinical neurologist and working with these patients, even though he's only actually worked with worms before. <laughs> yeah, and um, so one of the uh, so one of the interviewers, uh, Dr. Kaufman, and he'll show up again basically as Dr. Sayer's boss throughout the movie. Eventually, I think. They have to go all the way back to like his residency or his, just not even his residency. I think like his actual medical school for his like last clinical experience. He's hired nonetheless, uh, despite the fact that he's really looking for a research position just because the hospital needs him that badly. And we come to see why the hospital needs him that badly, because this is a hospital for it's a psychiatric hospital for just unusual neurological disorders. It's also pretty clear that the orderlies and the nurses, they're they're a little burned out. The order one of the orderlies that walks him through and is giving him a tour, he calls this place the garden because all they do is just feed the patients and water the patients. Sayer, as he goes through his first day on the job, he's just really overwhelmed. And um they do a really good job of depicting the neurodegenerative disorders and the tics and the odd behaviors that come with a lot of these. Oh, yeah. I think that everybody who played a patient in this movie is just a phenomenal actor. All of them. Yeah. All, I mean, Oliver Sacks was a technical consultant on this movie, and I, I think that it, it definitely shows. Anyways, he's... Dr. Sayer is incredibly overwhelmed. It's, 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 it's a rough first day. So, and then um, a nurse, Eleanor Costello, who will see throughout the rest of the movie uh, tells him that it gets easier yeah there's a scene after this one uh, after his long day where it cuts to him kind of relaxing at home by cultivating and studying plants as a hobby and i think this is a nice uh, throwback or reference to the term they used earlier for the ward which they called the garden because it shows that william's character basically likes to take care of plants and that's like his hobby that he does in his spare time i didn't even think about that that actually makes a lot of sense. They call it the garden, like kind of dismissively, mm-hmm. but he. But then the movie actually shows you that he genuinely cares for plants. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> so good. 
Wow. <laughs> this is why I have you on the podcast, Nick. <laughs> it's all that high school lit. Yeah, that's so good. Okay. Um, the next day, he's introduced to one of his first patients. It's a non-responsive patient named Lucy whose sister has died, and so she has nowhere else to go but this psychiatric hospital. He does kind of a basic basic evaluation. She doesn't respond to any stimuli. You know, he takes off her glasses, which will become important in a second. He cleans them, then he puts them back on, but, you know, not super securely. And so he turns around uh, after that and starts just typing up uh, his report on his typewriter. Now, he turns around, and what does he see? But Lucy is bent over and holding her glasses, which have clearly fallen off her face, and she's holding them in her hand. Right. So this is completely mystifying because she is effectively, or at least according to her records, hasn't moved at all, ever. Right. And so doctor, this clearly piques Dr. Sayer's curiosity, and he starts experimenting, uh, trying to figure out what's going on. You know, he does a couple different uh, variables. He places her glasses in front of her on the floor, but she doesn't do anything. Dr. Sayer then drops the glasses from a height and then sees her reach out and catch them in true motion. When he replicates this with a ball in front of his colleagues and boss, they're surprisingly dismissive um, and they're completely unimpressed saying it's a reflex. And that surprises me a little bit because, I mean, reflexes are basically, I mean, it's like you hit a nerve and then you move, right? Right. It's not necessarily like, I mean, that's a clear response to a a clear response to like a visual stimuli, not like just hitting a nerve. Right, right. Because a reflex process is through like a ganglia or other kind of like remote neural cluster. But this is obviously a response from like central nervous system to control a motor area. So it's very much not the same kind of thing at all. Yeah. And the fine motor control re- like required to like grip something mm-hmm. is, you know, that, I mean, that, that, that's, that feels like it's not a reflex. Especially because, I mean, and I guess this spoils something a little bit later, um, but it suggests that these doctors think that this is due to, like, degeneration. And it is, but, like, basically it's this kind of physical degeneration of the brain that is unfixable, is what they're proposing. And so for them to just be like, okay, cool, actually the motor, everything is still intact, is is kind of an odd response from them. Right. Um, There's another quick scene with another patient called Wahida, and this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie where Dr. Sayer is simply just, he's talking to her and he's about to take out, he's about to fill out her chart. He takes out his pen and clicks it and she just starts shrieking in terror. (laughs) And I didn't actually did not realize what was going on or like what prompted this until a scene later when they call back to this and it actually like pays off. Right. They like uh, the the one where they cover their pens. Yeah. Um, he notices another non-responsive patient, and he starts testing their ability to catch things, presume just by throwing things at them and having them catch them. Um, and it's a little, it, it emphasizes a little bit of how kind of awkward he is because he's basically just treating them like experiments to some extent. He notices that one non-responsive patient is just subtly attentive to specific visual patterns on the TV. He adjusts the rabbit ears because this is the 60s and they had to have analog wireless transmission of TV signals. And he notices that when he fixes it and it's a clear picture, um, the patient is no longer like paying attention to it. There's another great scene, and I love this part, where Lucy, um, the previous one where he first started noticing 
um, responses with the glasses, Lucy, that patient, she's walking towards a water fountain of her own accord, but she just inexplicably stops at some point and just refuses to walk anymore, just won't walk. And they're kind of clueless as to why this could be. And then it's at this point where we're introduced to who will be the secondary main character of this movie, Leonard, um, played by Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro, one of the most acclaimed actors in Hollywood, um, probably most well-known for playing Raging Bull, Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull, and a young Vito Corleone in The Godfather Part Two. So he notices Leonard, who is being cared for by his mother. He starts looking into the unresponsive patient's histories, and um, Nurse Costello invites him out for coffee or tea, but he declines, giving the excuse that he's busy. And then, in contrast to what he tells Nurse Costello, it cuts to him back home where he's just playing the piano in and we see his house again and just got there's like just like books everywhere just stacks on stacks of books like throughout his house including his beloved plant encyclopedia of course (laughs) yeah he's basically like a book hoarder and um clearly you know he he doesn't have much interest in the social life and he'll talk a little bit about his interactions with people a little bit later I just want to take a second to comment on his pattern finding of these symptoms. Um, So I think it's at this point where he starts noticing kind of common threads between these patients. And there's a nice line in the movie where he talks about them all having these atypical somethings, uh, like atypical dementia, atypical schizophrenia, atypical Parkinson's. And he concludes that these things are, are really so similar to each other. It seems they've become a typical something. And I think it's just kind of a nice commentary on disease classification and how really neurological diseases have always kind of struggled from this issue of classification, whether they be more like uh, psychological things that might fall into the DSM or whether they be things that are just generally more physically represented or categorized elsewhere. But it's always been a challenge, um, I think, finding all these different disease subtypes and really looking for how uh, what the core relation is between these things, since symptoms can be so similar between Uh, really different causes. And I think this is especially true in in neuroscience and diseases of the mind. Uh, Physical manifestation is hard. Right. And I'm sure back in the 70s as well, when information wasn't as easily shared and as easily available, it was just made that much more difficult. Yeah, definitely. So Sayer has been looking into all of their medical histories, trying to find some common thread, as Nick said, and he's eventually able to find a common thread. And he's he's able to find that they had all survived encephalitis. Encephalitis is basically brain inflammation. And this specific type that resulted in catatonic patients here is referred to as encephalitis lethargica. And extreme cases can result in the symptoms depicted in the movie. And the symptoms documented here basically occurred from victims that started showing the symptoms after the 1918 flu pandemic, although contemporary scholarship seems to be divided on whether the flu pandemic itself had any effect on uh, causing the encephalitis lethargica outbreak that was recorded. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about this disease um, now. I mean, it's really still, it maintains its mystery. Like we don't know whether it's some sort of autoimmune response or a direct uh like a virus causing breakdown or whether it's some sort of, I guess I'll call it like a chain reaction triggered by the inflammation. Uh, But this like degradation that you see in these patients in the movies, it just occasionally happens. And 
we really don't know why and the, and that's kind of what's reflected here in the movie they they don't know why dr sayer's looking into it and he starts looking into news stories and uh, literature on encephalitis and he eventually comes across somebody that worked a lot with encephalitic patients or dr ingham and and he starts talking to Dr. Ingham about this. And um, it's at this point where they have one of the most memorable exchanges in the movie where, where the two of them, they're watching um, film of that was recorded of these patients. Um, and Dr. Sayer asks, what are they thinking? And Ingham replies, well, they're not really thinking much of anything. There's uh, the virus destroyed the higher faculties. And uh, Dr. Sayer asks, well, how, how do we know this? And Dr. Ingham simply replies that we, we don't know this. It's if the alternative is just too horrific, meaning that essentially if they're just trapped in their own minds, fully aware of everything, but unable to actuate any anything on their own end, that's just too too much to think about. And It's unimaginable, as they say. And it's absolutely true. Um, and there's some indications... Uh, from the patients, but, and you know, not to spoil things, but the title of the movie, they do, <laughs> they do wake up at one point, and they are able to describe their experiences, and there's some indications that they knew to some extent what was going on. While struggling with uh, trying to figure out what his next steps are, um, Doctor Sayer is just uh, looking out the window, and I didn't mention this very much, but this is actually a recurring visual theme in this movie of Doctor Sayer looking out windows or like just staring out windows but he's he is looking out the window and he sees children playing hopscotch outside and he has a realization he realizes that when lucy stopped walking towards a water fountain the point at which she stopped is the point where a checkered board pattern on the floor also stopped and so he enlists Nurse Costello to help to manually color in a checkerboard pattern in the remainder of the room leading to the water fountain. And then he brings Lucy back and she starts walking as before. And instead of stopping, she continues walking. And as she's approaching the water fountain, they're all really happy and, um, and they're all very pleased that she's about to get water. And then she walks right past the water fountain and goes to look out the window. And I really like this part because um, when Parkinson's patients experience freezing of gait, um, basically they, their, they ju- their movement just stops. One of the things that physical therapists will do is to basically place their foot in front of the frozen foot mm-hmm. and encourage them to step over the foot. And basically, they'll just like move their foot in front of them, basically as, almost as an obstacle, as a visual cue. And and this seems k- kind of similar, like, you know, where providing that visual cue really helped a lot. Yeah, and it fits into the kind of larger theme that we'll see in the next scene, which is basically this idea that uh, pattern formation and, and fitting being the identifier of these inklings of awakenings. And that's where it all starts. Okay, yeah. And so I think... Dr. Sayer is, you know, he sees her looking out the window and then he realizes, okay, there's more going on in there than any of us realized because clearly she's, she's looking out the window for a reason. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
he goes to visit Leonard's mother, and um, it turns out that Leonard, who is the kid that we saw at the beginning of the movie, um, you know, we saw him when his symptoms start first started at age 11. And then she tells us that his symptoms got worse over nine years until he was completely unresponsive and then was taken to Bainbridge Hospital. And it's been basically three decades since that happened. Dr. Sayer takes an EEG reading of Leonard and shows the results to his colleagues who are not impressed until Dr. Sayer points out a prominent deflection in the EEG signal that corresponds with when he said Leonard's name to him, indicating that there is indeed attention and cognition happening. Right. And this is like the very triumphant scene where he leaves leaves them all flabbergasted. And they walk away smugly with them, uh, leaving them with the EEG papers. It, it, it's a really satisfying scene. It's definitely a gotcha moment. <laughs> so based off of, presumably based off of this uh, success, um, Dr. Sayer starts to expand his uh, trials. He, you know, he, he starts throwing balls at random non-responsive patients. I, I really like this part. Because this is the 90s montage in this movie. Uh, Basically, there's music playing, and he's doing all these different experiments with these patients, uh, one after the other, scene after scene, uh, and it's really fun. He reads to them. He plays music to them. There's this one part where basically it cuts between these two, the two same patients. One of them starts responding when they play opera. And then they start playing Jimi Hendrix, uh, Purple Haze. And, you know, that one patient stops responding and the other just immediately starts responding. (laughs) And there's another scene where uh, a group of them are, quote unquote, playing cards. Um, They're I mean, they're holding the cards. (laughs) (laughs) I don't necessarily not not to, you know, not to echo the attitude of the dismissive doctors, but I don't know how much uh, gameplay was going on. But the nurse is able to demonstrate to Dr. Sayer that when she initiates action by laying down a card, they all immediately start laying down cards. <laughs> but it's just like chaos. They just slam their cards out of their hand into the middle of the table all at once. Yeah, it, it's not exactly like a b- game of bridge or anything like that. <laughs> um, you know, another patient is willing to walk when being held or escorted by Nurse Costello. And most notably, and um, I don't know, I have not read the book, so... Um, so I don't know whether this is reflective of the real Leonard L, but Dr. Sayer notices that he can get Leonard to communicate with a Ouija board. <laughs> like, uh, you know, the thing, the children's toy that is basically a planchette on top of a board with letters and uh, everybody holds their hand over them and pretends not to be the one moving it. And it's like, oh no, it's a ghost. <laughs> and uh, this is his communication tool with Leonard. Which I guess implies that Leonard used to do like a lot of Ouija. <laughs> I, I mean, is that partially the I mean, takeaway here? Were, the, were Ouija board? Oh, were Ouija board around? When were they invented? Uh... Okay, so Ouija boards were started appearing in 1891, according to the first result on Google. And since Leonard is from the early 20th century, he absolutely could have had a Ouija board before he started showing symptoms. Uh, maybe before it was a Hasbro product or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. That's actually, I didn't even think about that. But Leonard uses the Ouija board in an unusual way. He uses the board to direct Dr. Sayer 
in the library to a very topical poem about a caged panther. And as the narration of the poem is read in the background, we cut to Dr. Sayer staring at a literal caged panther in, I assume, the Bronx Zoo or the Central Park Zoo. It's it's a bit on the nose. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's a bit strong, but it's also a strong side in that Leonard is experiencing like this this higher order cognition that allows him to come up with uh, this, I guess, eloquent tie-in to this poem, which he must have read or, or heard at some point. Definitely not the work of a brain-dead patient. No, not at all. And so it's at this point where, walking through the halls, Dr. Sayer introduces the idea of treating these patients with uh, L-DOPA. He attends a conference, and a, he attends a conference where a speaker is presenting the results of a study about L-DOPA and f- for Parkinsonism. And uh, Sayer attempts to ask questions, and he's you know kind of deflected till the end of the presentation. And we cut to the restroom where the speaker is using a urinal and and Dr. Sayer accosts him in the bathroom as he's relieving himself and continues asking him his questions. And Sayer's theory is basically that the patient's unresponsiveness is Parkinsonism taken to its extreme. You know, like the the tremor and the bradykinesia and the dyskinesia are all just so extreme that they've just gotten to the point of non-movement. Right. And so basically what he's trying to do or ask is, could we also therefore, would L-DOPA be an appropriate treatment for these patients as well? And the chemist comes back with, I think, what is a pretty good line from the movie. He says, I'm the chemist. You're the physician. You do the damage. (laughs) Yeah. And that's that's unfortunately like a little bit chilling uh, as foreshadowing Mm. there. For a little bit of background, uh, L-DOPA is short for levodopa, um, which is a precursor to a chemical precursor to the neurotransmitters dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. Uh, it is indeed the most widely used treatment for Parkinson's over the last thirty years, and it's still used today. Absolutely, but as we'll see, there are potential side effects to it, and and it's 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 certainly not a cure all by any means. Dr. Sayer goes to his boss, Dr. Kaufman, to try and get him to approve treatment for his patients with L-DOPA. You know, in some ways, I kind of sympathize with his boss here because, like, his boss is kind of a jerk about things, but, like, nothing he says is wrong. Yeah, it, it's true. I mean, he's, he's like, I guess you'd say, appropriately cautious. Though at the same time, these patients are like... Ugh. This treatment is like an emergency use or palliative care or something like right. that. And these patients are just having a hard time. Um, but still, we get to kind of counter the chemist line here where his boss re- responds to him and he says, we are doctors. Let the chemist do the damage. <laughs> and then he kind of goes into and comments on, I guess, the history of bad pharma uh, or basically pharma gone wrong in the past. Right. And then most notably, you know, he he brings up a very valid point of these patients don't have Parkinson's. And that was what the trial that you are referencing as your predicate is. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, he gives Dr. Sayer permission to, to administer L-DOPA to a single patient with the family's consent, because 
you know, obviously in, in their catatonic state, the patients themselves cannot give informed consent. And I think this is just like a weird aside, uh, but I actually like this process here because it's basically just a negotiation with like the hospital staff and administrators to be like, are we willing to take the risk on this? Uh, like in the cost to ourselves, test this theory out, which I mean, this is kind of like the precursor to the uh, uh, institutional review board process that exists today. Oh, yeah. And the first IRB actually was established several years after this conversation, um, which I think is is really interesting. Yeah, and like, you, and boy, if you ever want to be really, really depressed, like look into the history of unethical research and like some of the unethical experiments that have been performed at many, many very acclaimed academic institutions, institutions that truthfully really should have known better. Right. And it's, so it's that kind of history, which is only alluded to a little bit in this movie by his boss, I mean, um, where it actually shows the appropriate caution from him. I mean, it's really kind of an ethic, ethical thing for him to sit there and question Williams. But we're kind of made to think that this guy is like the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Robin Williams goes to visit Leonard's mother and he attempts to get her consent to treat Leonard with levodopa. And he is very clear that potentially the treatment will not work. He's very clear about that. But there is this one part where I'm not comfortable with from like a modern perspective where he slides the contract over and then slides the pen over after it. Like it's a very like used car salesman y kind of thing in the way that it's acted. And from a modern lens, it's kind of sleazy because he is the investigator on this. Right. He also doesn't necessarily, um, as an example, list the potential risks, right? He just says, oh, I don't know if it's going to be positive, but he doesn't know if it's going to help, but he doesn't talk about the other things that could go wrong. Right. And, you know, it <laughs> maybe it a movie about medical ethics is not necessarily and research and ethics is not necessarily an entertaining <laughs> movie. But, um, you know, I, I just figured I'd bring it up because it's something that, you know, we deal with. So Leonard's mother agrees to this and Leonard is administered the drug to no effect initially at various doses. And at one point, Dr. Sayer gets very frustrated as to why this is why this is having no effect. And he sneaks into the pharmacy and he administers double the dose to Leonard. And I cannot tell you how not okay this is. Yeah, I mean, he's stealing hospital supplies to start with. He goes way past the dose that the chemist had approved, way past the treatment recommendation from his boss. Like, literally everything he does in this scene is really, really bad. If someone were to do this today in a clinical trial, double the dosage, like, it, like it, it's just so incredibly inappropriate and unprofessional bordering on unethical. It, like, it, it's a nice dramatic moment for the movie, but holy crap, like... It is so not okay in real life. Yeah, but I mean, we quickly learned it doesn't matter because it works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the ends justify the means, right? Or something like that. <laughs> so um, after he administers double the dose, he falls asleep at Leonard's bedside. And when he wakes up, Leonard is no longer there. He is appropriately mystified. And he is eventually able to find Leonard in the cafeteria 
writing on paper. And Leonard, in his first line of the movie, remarks that it's quiet. Dr. Sayer then replies that everyone is asleep. And then Robert De Niro turns to him and smiles and says, I'm not asleep. And then Dr. Sayer says, no, you're very much awake. They did it. They said the title of the movie. They did the thing. They did it so well, though. I mean, it was perfect. I mean, like, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little cheesy and a little melodramatic, but it, it works. I agree. It, it's a nice moment. It works really well. You feel really good. Yeah, and you get the swelling of the touching emotional strings. And again, here, it, it's really strong. It's a, it's a strong feeling. Yeah. And um, the next morning, Leonard is properly introduced to his mother for the first time in decades. And this is a great scene um, for a lot of reasons. You know, it's emotional. It's touching. Um, and also, in the way that Robert De Niro acts out, acts out um, Leonard's movement, he's very shuffly and very rigid. And it, it is just spot on if you've seen Parkinson's patients before. And so then he's also introduced to the rest of the hospital staff, which is, and it's appropriately great. But then privately, uh, Eleanor just pulls Dr. Sayer aside and is like, does he know that he's lost 30 years of his life? And, you know, in the scene directly after, Dr. Sayer is taking pictures of him, you know, to record to record things for posterity. And he goes to get more film. And while Dr. Sayer is gone, Leonard sees a photograph of himself and he doesn't recognize himself. Right. And that, I mean, this raises a, a bunch of different questions, both about the disease itself. Like, does this mean he didn't have higher order faculties during this whole time? Um, or is this something else like memory lapse or loss? Um, there's definitely questions there. And to me, there's almost like these movie plot hole questions where it's like, well, if he's freaked out now, wasn't he freaked out when he saw that his mom was like 40 years older? <laughs> well, that's true. Well, yeah. Dr. Sayer then begins to take him out into the wider world. And we get a second montage. Yes. This is, uh, and then Leonard is able to experience all the joys of late 60s New York City um, to the sounds of time of the season by the zombies. And I promise you, anyone listening, if you have seen any like montage set in the 60s, late 60s, you have heard this song before. Like it is that song. Like, <laughs> so he's able to do, you know, he's able to smell weed for the first time of some as he walks by somebody smoking a blunt you know he sees frisbees he's able to experience the joys of soft serve ice cream and while dr sayer is getting him soft serve ice cream he sees a girl walking in a short dress past him which you know he turns his head to look at because you know that's a lot less than they would have worn in the 20s when he was growing up um they go to the same bench that oh whoa i didn't mention that did i so in the beginning of the movie, um, the opening scene is Leonard carving his name into a bench in what appears to be Battery Park in New York. And so they go to that same bench and Robert De Niro points out his name to him and it says Leonard very clearly. They're on a runway also for some reason <laughs> where Leonard is experiencing jumbo jets. And then Leonard goes for a swim in the East River, which is uh, notoriously polluted as Dr. Sayer attempts to explain to him to little effect. Right. And and then we get a reversal of the helper and, and helped roles here in a later scene where we're with Leonard and 
Dr. Sayer, and they start talking a little about, about Eleanor, and Leonard tells Robin Williams' character the, uh, that Eleanor likes him, which is, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I get shocking, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, he tells... And I, I'm actually not sure whether, like, this is maybe something Eleanor told the catatonic Leonard or whether it was just something that she told the non-catatonic Leonard. My impression was that, like, um, this is something Leonard learned in his catatonic state from Eleanor. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Um, it seems like this is picked up upon uh, past the fact that he's, like, known it for a while. Yep. And, of course, Dr. Sayer, of course, needs someone to tell him this explicitly despite the fact that she literally asked him out earlier in the movie he's kind of the ultimate um dumb main character when it comes to other people and he freely admits that he's not good with people which is what prompts leonard to say that's not true eleanor likes you so they're all thrilled at this success and they want to be able to replicate it and so um Dr. Sayer tries to persuade dr kaufman to approve l-dopa treatment for the rest of this patients and so uh, unfortunately, it's $12,000 a month, at which Dr. Kaufman is just, he's just not having any of that. Dr. Sayer suggests that if they get Leonard's story out there to, you know, the hospital board or rich donors, they'll be able to raise the money for it. But his boss is not receptive to this idea, and he doesn't think that people will be that moved by Leonard. And then this is probably another very, very, very 90s uh, moment in the movie where all of the staff that are in the room at the same time, they've overheard this conversation, they walk up to Dr. Kaufman and begin laying their paychecks in front of him to demonstrate the idea that, yes, like people will give money because Leonard's story has had that effect on them and it will have that effect on others. And it's, it's really moving, but it's also a little bit too direct. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very 90s it's like that scene in rudy where like um the entire notre dame football team comes and like throws their jerseys in resignation in front of the coach to uh protest rudy not being able to play the last game it's it's a very 90s uh, style stylistic <laughs> choice so um presumably this gesture although we think it's a little cheesy presumably it had uh, an effect on Dr. Kaufman because we cut to Dr. Sayer presenting to a bunch of rich donors and high society types. Um, and he's giving a very scientific, a very technical presentation. Um, and he's just kind of rambling on about science and using a ton of just kind of a ton of incomprehensible medical jargon. And he's losing the audience. At which point, Eleanor, who is you know off to the side, uh, scribbles him a note that says, less scientific, calm down. And so Sayer, upon reading this, immediately starts talking more about the humanistic side of what happened, you know, to doing an emotional appeal. And then, start, and then shows a video of Leonard speaking directly to the potential donors. Now, upon seeing this dramatic uh, video and hearing Dr. Sayer's plea, <laughs> they, they immediately, right there, just in their seats, just start writing checks, just right there. <laughs> I, pre I presume they just started like throwing them at him on the stand or something. Yeah, and it's also very 90s in the idea that like people would still know what checks are. 
So um, presumably because of that, it's all paid for, and we cut to the drug being prepared. Um, and I like this part because the chemist or lab tech who's measuring out the and preparing this dosing is all happy and smiley now. Whereas before he was always like begrudgingly giving it to him. And now he's just very compliant with this, I guess. Cash in hand helps. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he just yeah. needed to be personally well, convinced. Well, I mean, you know, he's seen Leonard, right? So he know and he now knows what like what the impact that he can have. Yeah, yeah I guess that's true. Uh, but we get to think this is my favorite line in the movie here because Dr. Sayer is like falling asleep in his office, I guess, waiting to see what the results of this are. Um, and then <laughs> this nurse just bursts in. And he's like, what's happening? And she's like, a fucking miracle is happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so this movie is PG-13. To maintain a PG-13 rating, you get one F-bomb. One. And they chose to use it here. And I think, you know, I agree with you. I think they deployed it to maximum effect here. It's perfect. Because, yeah, it, it is, to, to a large extent, so out of tone with the rest of the movie. I don't even think there's a single, like, probably even a single, like, hell or damn even, you know, the, the, the okay swears. I don't even think that there's a single one of those in the rest of the movie. But there's not even, like, really any other high-intensity emotional scenes. Like, there's no angry yelling or fighting. Uh, there's no, like, exclamations. This is, like, the loudest the movie gets, <laughs> which I think is fun. Well, I mean, you do kind of get it when, or, I mean, spoils later on, but when Leonard starts to decline, right? Yeah, yeah, and it gets intense later, but I guess this is, like, the pivot point to the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they used their one F-bomb to maximum effect there. So... What this fucking miracle is, is that all the unresponsive patients are now coming out of their catatonic states and are just moving around. The, and the staff struggles with the fact that now they have to deal with seven or eight completely active patients, who, whereas basically they were just wheeling people around before. And then the reactions of each of these patients, uh, each of them has a different reaction, right? One looks at herself in a mirror and requests makeup and hair dye. Another one is just like, She's just like booking it, like just <laughs> running around. And Nurse Beth is like, is frantically just being like, come back. I need to take your temperature. And then like, and the patient is like, I've been in a chair for 30 years. You couldn't do it before. <laughs> 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 and um, you know, Lucy tells Dr. Sayer that she had the strangest dream. And then when Dr. Sayer asks her what year it is, and this is very concerning for Dr. Sayer, she replies, why? Of course, it's 1926. There's this one um character that just like starts listing off like food he's like i want mashed potatoes i want green beans i want steak go go get it for me <laughs> and then i think in probably the most poignant uh one is that one patient very quietly just says i was able to use the bathroom by myself which really is the highest order need for people uh, in these types of states um, i think a lot of people underestimate it because it's not something we like to talk about a lot but it's the number one need stated by patients is they start to lose their independence. They, they want to go to the bathroom by themselves. Yeah. And, and just like the fact that like you can see you can and the actress that delivers that line is great because you can just see how how like happy she is to have regained that measure of independence and dignity. So uh, while all this is happening, Leonard, you know, he, he's you know, he, he knows what was happening. Right. He was 
kind of patient zero. And he's, you know, he's smiling and looking on happily. And in all of, in all of the chaos that's happening, um, he sees uh, a pretty girl among the visitors. And then a little bit later, he sees her reading to another patient. So um, we'll get acquainted with her in, a, in, in, in the next scene. The patients are all headed out on a field trip. Uh, they're all dressed up and they're all excited to get out in the world for the first time. They, they're they all going to load up in in uh, yellow and black school buses. Right. And I think there's kind of a funny scene here. Um, they're getting into the school bus and, and one of the patients, the guy that was ordering food, I don't think we actually ever get his name, uh, was like checking out the tires. Uh, I guess presumably because tires have probably changed a lot in the last 30 years. And he's checking out the tires of the school bus and one of the nurses is like, yeah, that's a tire in a really like patronizing tone. And he responds with, I know it's a tire. I'm not an idiot. <laughs> and I really love this line because I think it kind of demonstrates and shows some of the poor treatment of people. Certain mental disabilities are um, like, oh, okay, this person has a motor disability, so they act weird. So I'm going to assume that their mental faculties are also degraded. And so they kind of end up getting treated in these uh, infantile or bad ways and I understand this looks like a quick line in the movie, but I think it's a big commentary on the social aspect of these types of diseases. Yeah, I mean, um, <clears throat> you know, you know, Oliver Sacks spent decades working with these patients, right? And he was a consultant on this movie. And so one would think that he would make it a priority to the director that the depiction of these patients is done in such a way that, you know, they're not a punchline. Mm-hmm. Or if they are used for comedic effect, at least, you know, make sure that you express them with di- with dignity. Right there are comedic aspects to this but you know the patients are to a large extent depicted with basically depicted with a lot of respect so they're headed out on a field trip um one of them was inspecting the tires and leonard you know he's noticed this girl he keeps looking for her and then he you know makes an excuse to slip away from the field trip so that he can go talk to her and he meets her in the cafeteria um and they start to form a connection her name is paula and it turns out her father has suffered a stroke and is largely unresponsive, um, and similarly to Leonard, um, which he tells her, but he also tells her that he has medication that makes him better. And in this conversation, Paula is wondering whether her father even knows that she's there, even knows that she visits, even knows that she reads to him. And Leonard replies, he knows, basically implying that you know, he knew that his mother was visiting all this time, that his mother was talking to him, that his mother was reading those magazines to him. As for the rest of the group, the field trip is to the greenhouse or a botanical gardens greenhouse. And this is, you know, Dr. Sayer's idea of a great night out, but certainly not anyone else's idea of a great night out, which the orderlies are making clear to him that the patients are starting to get bored on the patient's suggestion, they head to a swing club where, uh, not that kind of swing club. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they head to like a swing music club, a club for swing music, <laughs> where, you know, the music, the swing music is contemporary to when most of these uh, patients would have started falling into unresponsiveness. And so they're all having a great time. Dr. Sayer looks like he would rather be literally anywhere else on earth through the most of it. But, you know, the patients are having a great time and and he's happy that they're having a great time. 
Uh, so, you know, we continue on kind of following the patient's lives as they uh, as they go on. Um, one patient, we finally get our first kind of like acknowledgement of the implications of waking up after 30 years uh, with no knowledge of what was going on. Uh, one patient basically tells one of the orderlies, you know, everyone I know is dead or gone and my children have moved away and I'm 30 years older. Like, I, and I really think that's the first acknowledgement that like, there are social implications to bringing these patients out of their state. Right. It's really kind of surprising in a lot of ways that the other patients don't reflect that same kind of attitude. Right. But I don't know how true that is or not from Zach's actual work. Right. As we, as we go through the patient's lives, uh, Leonard is spending time with his mother, but then he sees a girl. <laughs> And uh, he sees Paula passing by and he goes to spend time with her. And his mother is very annoyed about this. Um, Leonard is clearly very, very infatuated. Um, he calls Dr. Sayer in the middle of the night, just monologuing about how great it is to be alive. You know, how how the newspapers only talk about terrible things. But because he's gone through what he's gone through, you know, people need to appreciate the little things. There's a very uh, smooth transition as it basically cuts directly from Leonard having this conversation with Dr. Sayer to Dr. Sayer recounting this conversation with the pharmacist. And this is the payoff for the pen that terrified that patient Wahida before. Because as he and the pharmacist both leave the room, they see Wahida and they're like, hey. And they, they and then they instantly both clap their hands over their pockets to hide the pen. <laughs> and I love this because like that I felt I thought that was just like a throwaway gag at the beginning. It's just like, hey, they're like somebody's having like an episode, uh, like a manic episode or a psychotic episode. It's like, no, she's actually just has a she just actually just has a phobia of pens. <laughs> And I feel like that has to be something that was from the book because it's just so like weirdly specific. Yeah, yeah. It's it's oddly placed, but it's a good again, like humor interjection before the movie uh starts turning again towards this more somber side. Yeah. That is kind of the emotional high point of the movie because Leonard is starting to get impatient. He's being basically cooped up in this psychiatric hospital, and he appears before the hospital staff asking to be allowed to go, come and go as he pleases. And he notes that basically everyone else, um, everyone else in the room takes this for granted, the ability to come and go as they please. They decide against allowing him to do this, uh, citing the risk and liability to the hospital, which is, I suppose, reasonable. And um, Leonard is very upset and begins to exhibit facial tics. And um, if you've ever seen uh, somebody with Tourette's, these are very accurate to what somebody with Tourette's or another like, or or another like movement disorder might experience. Sayer basically tries to point this out as reasons why, like they're right, you know, they're right, Leonard. Like you know, this tick, it's not nothing. Maybe it's not safe. And Leonard just becomes more and more agitated and just attempts to leave but he is stopped at the door and he's just like manhandled by security and it's it's a little it's it's they're unnecessarily violent so you know leonard's mother is informed of this and she's very very upset and uh we get another sense of dr sayer's awkwardness with people because um leonard's mother is ple is is mystified she's saying she was he was never like this. He was never any trouble. He never gave, he never talked back to anybody or anything. And then Dr. Sayer says, ma'am, he was catatonic. <laughs> it's so bad. 
and then and then Mrs. Lowe just gives him a death glare. It's just like if if looks could kill, you know, and she just says coldly to him, I meant when he was a child. <laughs> but she actually goes on to talk about a little bit, or I guess accuses him of turning her child into somebody he wasn't. Or kind of implying that there's these massive personality shifts. Yeah, and uh, in the next scene, we can, to some extent, see that that's the case. And if anyone's seen, like, a prison movie where there's always, like, a cell block boss, for some reason, Leonard has turned into, like, the cell block boss for for the upper part of the psychiatric hospital where presumably, like, more manic patients and, like, psychotic patients are held. Where he, and he's been placed there because of, you know, his, his uncooperative behavior earlier. But he's basically like the cell block boss and he's just ranting about how the doctors and the staff are the problem, you know, the patients aren't the problem and his tics are worsening. And after that scene, we cut to Dr. Sayer and his boss talking about this behavior. And his boss, again, is presented a little bit as a light antagonist here, but he really brings up very, very, very salient points. He's very concerned that Leonard's behavior will have an effect on other patients. He's very concerned that all the stuff that Leonard's saying about doctors being the problem, staff being the problem, will cause problematic behavior in the psychotic patients. No, Dr. Sayer is saying, well, look, nobody else is like this. And then Dr. Kaufman, his boss, replies, well, nobody's been on this medicine as long as he has, which... Uh, duh. <laughs> and Dr. Sayer really has no, has no response to this. This clearly hits home for him. And obviously, I mean, the immediate concern is that, like, how much longer do the rest of them have? Right. So... Due to this, and, you know, this clearly gets through to Dr. Sayer because he goes up to Leonard and he tries to talk him down. He uh, he tries to get him to calm down. He, and Leonard's tics are worse. He's becoming increasingly paranoid. He <laughs> he has he has bodyguards. And when like and when uh, Dr. Sayer approaches, well, you know, Leonard's just like, he's fine. He's with me. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's, it's a very odd, like, vibe. Like, it's it's, it's definitely like prison movie energy but you know he's very paranoid and he's not receptive to anything dr sayer is telling him about calming down trying to come back and he lashes out he shoves dr sayer to the ground dr sayer's glasses are knocked off and then we go into a scene where leonard he's still just walking around the psychotic ward you know when he comes across dr sayer's broken glasses from when he shoved him and he comes to kind of this realization that things have gotten out of hand. When Dr. Sayard comes to see him next, they reconcile. And then Leonard comes back to the main ward where he agrees to continue the treatment and basically be observed and be the guinea pig in the test pilot case. Over the next few scenes, his tics and symptoms just get progressively worse. And, you know, the, the other patients, you know, they see this and it's very clear to them what this means. Yeah, the whole energy of the ward changes. Uh, they're whispering about and asking those same questions like, what does this look like? Uh, how much longer do we have? Who's going to experience it first? How could we fight this? And uh, they're just watching Leonard slip into these worsening states. Right. It's very somber. You know, Leonard continues to deteriorate and Dr. Sayer really keeps, he just keeps increasing the dose. And I 
and I hate to like say that any part of this scene is funny, but like there's these scenes where Robin Williams is basically, he's just like standing there like perplexed. He's like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? You know, when they're trying to decide on the dose, he's just standing there. What do I do? What do I do? More. And then it'll cut to another scene of uh, Leonard getting worse. And then it cuts back to basically that same scene again of, of Robin Williams agonizing, trying to figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. more like and it does sound like three times like so uh, I, I i and so i think that was a little unfortunately unintentionally funny but leonard's conditions continue to deteriorate his tics get worse he occasionally slips into brief catatonic phases for the moment the other patients are able to like tap him on the shoulder and bring him back out mm-hmm and at one point, he ba- he has um, an oculogyric crisis, which is basically, it appears like a seizure um, is what I saw. And this is and this scene in particular is 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 tough to watch. It's tough. It, it's literally tough in that, like, during this crisis, um, as he's spasming, he encourages Dr. Sayer to go get the camera. And he just starts saying, like, learn from me, learn from me, as he's seizing. And Dr. Sayer can barely even get himself to, to film it. Yeah, I mean, you can really see just like how much this is this is affecting Doctor Sayer because he's filming this. He's like, he's like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And Leonard's like, No, no, no. You have to learn, learn, learn. And it's that that scene is a punch in the gut. But I think what's even worse is when the scene where he basically finds out he can't read anymore. And I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but when Dr. Sayer is visiting Leonard's mother for the first time, um, and Leonard and Leonard's mother tells him basically he had nine years of symptoms before he became completely unresponsive, Dr. Sayer asks, what did he do those nine years? And she responds, mostly he just read. Reading is very important to him. And Robert De Niro does such a good job of just being really heartbreaking when he says, I can't read anymore. My eyes can't focus as his head is tremoring and uh, is exhibiting tics. And he's just like almost on the verge of tears as he realizes that he can't do this thing anymore. And so at this point, um, Mrs. Lowe is having a conference with the hospital staff. And she says, when this happened the first time, we didn't know what was happening. He was slipping away from us. We couldn't do anything about it. But now you can do something about it. The implication here is very much that she's withdrawing her consent for the trial and that she wants him to be taken off of the L-DOPA regimen. Leonard is very aware of what's about to happen, about that he's losing himself. He's basically unable to move without exhibiting um, large degrees of tremor and tics and um, movement, involuntary movement. And he has one last lunch with Paula where he says goodbye to her for the last time and they share one last dance in the cafeteria before he leaves as the rest of the patients look on and in a touch that i like i don't necessarily know how medically accurate it might have been but his tics and his involuntary movement and tremor after they dance as he leaves are calmed just a little bit i mean i i like it for you know movie reasons that that happened yeah i mean i guess it's fitting with some of the earlier reflex work like, okay, here's a pattern you can follow and it helps him to calm. Or in those cases, it helps them to kind of briefly awaken those patients, gives them a pattern to follow. But I think the, some, the same can be done for Parkinson's patients where it can help control symptoms if there's a certain repetitive uh, movement that can be done. And maybe in this case, I guess, uh, dancing is a repetitive movement that uh, qualifies. 
Right. Or may or, you know, just someone that's familiar and comforting possibly as well. Mm-hmm. As has been made clear to us in the last few scenes, uh, Leonard is about to slip back into a non-responsive catatonic state. And we're shown this by by seeing Leonard being put to bed, um, his diaper being buttoned up by his mother, and and he's being pushed down into the bed. And so Leonard is, is gone. Mm-hmm. Then Dr. Sayer watches film from early in the study of Leonard, you know, going about activities, speaking completely clearly without any symptoms. And he's just very agonized over whether he did the right thing, whether it was okay for him to administer this treatment that brought them out of this state and gave them hope, only to see it just slip away and revert back to what they were before. And this is where the his nurse gives another strong line in the movie, or at least a main line in the movie, saying that life is given and taken away from all of us. You know, he he's he's somewhat comforted by comforted by that, but this clearly just has had such an effect on him. Not only because you know he's become friends with Leonard and he's seeing his friend slip away, but also he knows that now this is going to start happening for everyone. He has to go. Th- he is going to have to go through this. Yeah, 30 more times or something. The, re- the rest of the patients uh, slip into the, back into their catatonic states, but it's shown through a montage and it's kind of compressed. We don't get the full, full process like we did with Leonard. But after they return to their states, it's shown through a montage that you know, they have had effects on everyone they've interacted with. You know, the orderlies and the nurses, they, they are, they're more engaged with, uh, with them even though they're not being responded to. Um, and the people that visited them, they're more engaged. You know, we have a scene of Paula now visiting Leonard and reading to him. So next we kind of cut to Dr. Sayer speaking to the donors again. And he basically says that even though the awakening that they experienced, they did it again. They said the name of the movie. They did the thing. <laughs> So even though these awakenings were brief, they also had an effect on everyone else where they awakened the spirit, seeing, uh, seeing everyone come out. And it's really, I think it's really just trying to kind of put a more optimistic note on things uh, after, because, I mean, the last few scenes were, were pretty bleak. Yeah. But, you know, he tell, he's basically telling the donors about like, this didn't go the way that we wanted to. But they had a tremendous effect on us and, I suppose, other people. Yeah, everyone needs to experience the little joys in life. Uh, I guess this is kind of a throwback to Leonard's manic monologue about his love life. (laughs) Yeah, and then um, in our final scene, uh, Dr. Sayer is typing up a report late at night. Um, Nurse Costello says goodnight to him and leaves. It's at that point where, spontaneously presumably inspired by Leonard and the events of the study and hopefully by the speech he just gave. He's inspired to go run after Eleanor, a very 90s rom-com style, and ask her out in a contrast to the beginning of the movie where she asked him out and he was like, no, I'm busy. I need to go play piano by myself in my house. <laughs> I still hate this scene though. <laughs> really? Yeah, I just, I just wish it ended at the donor scene. <laughs> Like the final line of the movie was just enjoy the little things in life and look for the silver lining and grab the moments that you can. But this scene is just so predictable and forced. And it's also like the whole, the way she asks him out or is pretty uncomfortable. 
and he's pretty awkward about it. Um, <laughs> but she doesn't really seem to necessarily appreciate the awkwardness, so the whole thing's just uncomfortable to me, but it's fine. So it's not a great rom-com. I mean, I acknowledge that. Yeah, as um, Dr. Sayer and Eleanor walk to walk off to have coffee on their date, the end card text states that, you know, the hospital staff continued working with the patients. And over the next couple years, every so often with various treatments, they would experience brief periods of awakening, but nothing to the extent that they did in the summer of 1969. And that Dr. Sayer continues to work at a hospital in the Bronx. And presumably by Dr. Sayer, they actually mean Dr. Sachs because Dr. Sachs is an actual person. Right. And then one last comment on this uh, proof positive that I should never direct movies. Because when I read the last uh, end text of nothing was as dramatic as the summer of 1969, immediately in my head, I was like, oh, you know, it would be great for credits music. Summer of 69 by Brian Adams. <laughs> Just like start, you know, just blare those opening chords immediately over those end credits. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's a terrible idea. Steven, no, you should never be in charge of movies. <laughs> and that is Awakenings. Great. So I feel like this is where our audience finds out that I'm a fraud. We're all frauds. You know, because of my background in neural engineering and biomedical engineering, I have a working knowledge of systems neuroscience. But as far as clinical neurology and like disease etiology, I don't know much at all. <laughs> I, st I still think there's a lot we can talk about related to some of the science in this movie. I mean, we've already given a little background on L-DOPA. We've already talked about some of the EEG stuff. But maybe we can kind of expand upon, um, I guess, recap the scientific recap of these symptoms and uh, the subsequent and additional study of L-DOPA. I think there's a lot that um, we've learned after uh, uh, the additional decades of research with it since uh, since this movie, as well as other options. So if we think a little bit about um, the real-life study, and we kind of take uh, Oliver Sacks' own words here, so this this really happened. The extent to which they were brought out of their, the patients were brought out of their catatonic state, that's not exaggerated so far as I can tell. They were well and truly brought out of their catatonic states, and they experienced um, full awareness and full mobility with no symptoms for some time up until symptoms, uh, symptoms started reappearing. Now, in the movie, the timeline is compressed somewhat. Right. But Dr. Sachs himself, in letters to journals, basically expressed concerns over what could happen here. In, and I'm going to read straight from the letter here. Um, it is evident that the administration of levodopa may generate problems of unusual complexities. Our concern is the occurrence of serious and possible long-term effects, a point inadequately discussed in the literature. We therefore have reservations about the release of the drug at this time, as indeed the Food and Drug Administration itself seems to entertain, since it commented in its bulletin that long-term safety and efficiency has not been established. Which is in stark contrast to our Cairo Kyber's description of it, I think, uh, a couple of decades later, where he says, and I quote, I'm quoting him here, L-DOPA is one of the most potent therapies in all of neurology, or in all of medicine. In some ways, to think about it, to take someone who's essentially rigid like stone and enable them to get up and walk and function, it's unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to note that the main indication for use for L-DOPA as it's used now and most effectively used now is not is not Oliver Sacks' use case. 
Um, it's not catatonic patients. Right. It's basically patients with um, essential tremor, dyskinesia, and Parkinson's um, symptoms. You know, he was administering for this somewhat different use case. He and then over a long term period, he was able to observe what we now know is an adverse effect of L-DOPA, where over long term, this therapy can result in tics and involuntary movements. And um, it's been shown that in Parkinson's patients, these tics and involuntary movements and adverse effects can start to develop after five to 10 years of this treatment. Right. And they call this in-between phase before these symptoms develop the honeymoon phase. And I think that's a it's a sad phrase. It's a it's a sad thing to have with a treatment like this. Um, there's this history of debate on, you know, when is the best time to begin this treatment? Which years of your life do you want to try to reclaim and stabilize? Um, and, and you're trying to leverage that against things, you know, like waiting until a future therapy develops because eventually this drug will become ineffective. And I think that's such a strange debate to have with one's self and one's own family in the context of one's own life to pick and choose what years you want to be functional. What would you do? I mean, it's, it's so hard. I, I guess it depends on when you feel like, when you feel like the symptoms are really starting to hit you. But uh, I guess I would try to try, probably try to keep my younger years as much as possible. So just start early. I would probably need to be educated on how effective it could be because I would probably want to drag it out until symptoms are kind of like really starting to interfere with everyday life and then uh, and then start. Yeah. Aside from L-DOPA though, um, probably one of the most dramatic treatments for Parkinson's these days is deep brain stimulation. Right. And this is where we're not frauds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So deep brain stimulation for the purposes of treating Parkinson's disease is what they do is they basically put a stimulator, uh, implant, a fully implantable stimulator. It's basically the same thing as like a pacemaker. It's the same. And they put it kind of in your shoulder um, on your chest cavity. And then they route the electrode lead up your neck and then into your brain. And there are two brain regions where this is approved by the FDA for treatment, the uh, globus pallidus, uh, you may hear that referred to as GPI, and the subthalamic nucleus, the STN. And boy, like some of the videos that circulate of DBS on and off before and after, boy, they're, they're so dramatic. Yeah, if you want to watch some awakening style dramatic changes in real time, uh, those are always really moving. Yeah, there's videos out there of somebody, you know, like drinking, trying to drink a cup of water and they're just, they, and they just can't. It's their, their hand, their, the tremor is too severe and the water is just splashing everywhere. And then it'll cut to DBS on and they're just able to drink completely normally. It's, it's incredibly extraordinary. Parkinson's is probably the most common disorder associated with deep brain stimulation, but there's a lot of, um, but there's a lot of work kind of trying to generalize deep brain stimulation to other disorders such as um, such as Tourette's. DBS is very effective at uh, stopping Tourette's tics, as well as some preliminary work on depression as well, depression mm -hmm. treatment through DBS, which is still very much in early stages. And OCD, which is being touched on as well. And really all of these kind of stem from the main mechanism of DBS which is that it addresses states of hypersynchrony in the brain. Uh, the stimulation of DBS is really good um, at all of this because it's breaking up these hypersynchronous states. 
Um, and it's basically using the stimulation to just stop it. And so basically, if you can find a disease that is characterized by that, you can find a good target uh, for deep brain stimulation. Right. DBS is usually, I mean, it's, it's brain surgery. Let's, let's be very clear about that. So it's, um, it's a big deal. It's not a minor surgery. The hole they put in your brain to actually like insert the lead is relatively small, but like they're going like into deep structures. Right. So it's generally not the first thing you do to treat these, but if it's not responsive to medication, DBS is often what will be recommended. Right. And I think part of this is because it plays along so well with L-DOPA. Both of them seem to have a uh, slightly different mechanism as to how they like operate and on and treat these symptoms uh, because their effects are actually additive. And if you're pro- uh, responding pretty well to L-DOPA, um, or if you just had DBS and it's going pretty well, um, but not perfectly, you can actually get these effects to add uh, to effectively be symptom-free. And because of this additive effect, uh, you, know, you don't need as much of each. You need less of each, if that makes sense. So you don't need as much L-DOPA administered. You don't need as strong of DBS, which means they also help each other with their side effects. And so it's a pretty nice combo um, as far as pharma device combo therapies go. And um, I'm glad you actually mentioned that because uh, one thing that is associated over long-term deep brain stimulation is basically desensitization to the sti- to the electrical stimulation. That that does happen over a long period of time. It's not necessarily to the same extent as um, L do- as dopamine treatment, where things will deteriorate um, and there are adverse side reactions. But, you know, the stimulation will become less effective over time. And there's a lot of work um, in kind of trying to find a closed loop paradigm for stimulation or trying to find um, biomarkers for tremor and biomarkers for freezing of gait so that you can administer the stimulation when it's going to be when it will be the most effective. Right. And that in that case, in that way, you A, preserve the battery and B, you slow down the process of desensitization. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is, uh, in some ways, the theory of trying to lower uh, L-DOPA administration. You don't have so much of these um, follow-on side effects. And it's like a widespread distribution of dopamine production throughout the nervous system, but there's less of this desensitization. Which is unfortunate why that uh, Dr. Sayer was just upping that dosage. Right. (laughs) It was the only idea he had, man. (laughs) But I think this is a good lead-in to the other ways that they're trying to improve uh, this kind of pharma side as well. Um, so if the improvements of DBS in the future of this kind of is this kind of responsive stim, then the improvements to the pharma side, besides uh, more targeted therapies, is also just trying to find ways to control. Uh, they've kind of follow-on ca- and cascading elements of L-DOPA being the precursor and trying to control where and when it's administered. Uh, so finding ways to get it through the blood-brain barrier faster or finding ways to make so the stuff that uh, doesn't make it through the blood-brain barrier doesn't cause side effects in other parts of the body. And so I think there's it's about finding ways to control some of the metabolic processes um, that it goes through. And so it's usually administered in some kind of cocktail of other substances. And I'm not going to list them all, I guess, here because there's too many. Um, but... I, I think pharma is that that's the way that it's heading. Okay, so as we've done in other episodes, um, we're going to rate. Okay, 
this is awkward because we usually rate like a device or like we rate we rate the science on a scale of one to five one being literal actual pseudoscience phrenology the um idea that you can glean neurological information from the bumps and shape of one's skull to five being a 510k clearance uh, from the Food and Drug Administration, basically meaning you are allowed to sell this as a medical device or treatment in the United States. How do we approach this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's real. Uh, say it's a five and move on, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like I said at the top of the episode, this is this is fiction pretty much on a technicality. Yeah, because they changed some guy's name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I fully agree. This is literal actual science. This is this was a great depiction of neurodegenerative diseases um in in my opinion, not just in in depicting the symptoms, but also in many ways depicting the human toll of them. Yeah, and again, the acting here is phenomenal. Uh that depiction by De Niro, I think is obviously really accurate and also kind of hard to watch. I mean, I feel like if I were him, and I'm not trying to end the episode on a sad note here, but I feel like if I were him, I'd have a hard time having acted in this movie and then be at the age that he's at and not just experience this feeling of like fear or dread looking at this as being a possibility of a real future. So we'll uh, end this episode as we always do with uh, what our takeaway from this movie is. And this can be a science takeaway. This can be, you know, whatever. Well, what, what's your main takeaway here, Nick? <laughs> I've got two takeaways. Uh, one, IRBs are a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the second takeaway, I guess, is the main message at the end of the movie. Uh, seize life, little moments, and appreciate the little things. As John Keating, uh, Robin Williams' character from Dead Poet Society, which was released two years before this movie, says, Carpe diem. Seize the day. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us for this episode of Narratives. Uh, thank you, Nick, for joining me, and we'll see you next time.